We've had a wonderful week, and I hope that that opening song was really a treat for you. I, I love that one of, one of you, I know you guys are always sending me little things by email and sending me little texts, and so this is one that came to me um, through a, a Facebook post, and I just loved it. So I wanted to play that song for you and give you the opportunity to hear that. I think it should be like our fight song for the whole book of Ezekiel, you know, because it's just such a powerful uh, little message. And it's a toe tapper, huh? I mean, this is, this is one of those that can get you moving. <laughs> um, all right. So this week in our homework, we had a, a, we had a ton, of course, to look through. It was very difficult for me personally to stay focused on that big picture. Do you remember last week I told you that with Kay, what we're seeing here in, in the way that she is presenting this homework, it is very obvious that she's asking us, don't get tangled up in the weeds, but try to stay up at that level where you're seeing the forest, right? Um, but I got to say, it's hard to do, isn't it? And in particular, it's hard for us little Gentiles because we do not understand all those qualities and aspects and layouts and articles and so forth of the temple and the temple mount and how things are laid out. And when he talks about the, the, the progression of God's uh, glory as it was um, moving through the temple and even where the idolatries were taking place, we have to really dig into that to, to begin to really grasp the idea of what was going on there. Um, so for this week, what I'm going to do is I want to take us through and actually do paragraph titles this week. And we may or may not get through every single one of them, but I'm going to do my very best to progress us through that as quickly as we can. And along the way, as we hit these different points, we can try to, to talk through the layout of how things would have been. Um, couple of things. Number one, Kay gave you a chart, and I would suggest that you pull that out, the one that shows the temple mount. So get that handy. Now what I did, and I don't know if you did or did not, but if you did, yay, I actually drew my own and then visualized what was going on in that event, okay? I know you guys are laughing at me, and that's okay, but I can tell you it was the only way I could figure out, did some of the rest of you do this? Um, that's, oh, it would be in your appendix, 37 page. Oh, it's not actually in the appendix. It's, it's in the back of the homework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. The other thing I would like you to pull out is your list that says, um, then you will know that I am the Lord. Just have that handy. At some point we may get to that. Um, as you went through chapter by chapter, did you have a chance to do any list making? If so, pull those out, have those available, because we may get to those. There's a lot of things we may get to, but we may not. I just want you to have them handy so that you'll have them available. And then I ended up with having one little rabbit trail this week also, which really had nothing to do with anything. But somebody asked me a question about the Ark of the Covenant, and I had to go back and research that. <laughs> so if you have any questions about the Ark of the Covenant, I might have the, some of the answers figured out at this point. But, you know, those of us who are, are, are not um, Jewish, and we don't have that full understanding visually of those things, some of this work this week was, was, was definitely a challenge. 
And um, I just want to encourage you that, remember, we are doing this little by little. And every time you do a Bible study, you get a little bit better understanding. You get a little bit more information. Nobody expects us to know all of these things first time through, okay? I even still, after all these years of doing precept and, and doing a lot of this studying and researching, I still get confused on some of it because... I'm not Jewish, you know, and I didn't live in the days of the temple, and I have never seen the temple executed in, in the ways that, that are so detailed in their description through script, in the scriptures. So we have to kind of try to iron them out as we go along. All right. I want to start with just a little bit of a review, and I'm not going to probably, I guess I... I could, but I'm not going to write it down. I think I'm just going to talk you through it. I want to go back to context setting on this. We want to talk about our author. Who is our author again, just for review? Ezekiel. Now tell me, what are the most essential points about Ezekiel in the context of this book? What do we need to know about this man? He is in in exile. He's in the Babylonian exile, correct? Uh, In in the exile, there were three uh, sieges of uh, the house of Judah, correct? Uh, which one are we in with Ezekiel? The second one, correct. He, he was taken captive in the second exile. Has the third, yeah, has the second siege, I mean. In the, the sequence of events here, has the third siege occurred? No, not yet. So this is, would you say, significant? Particularly this week, uh, again, as we're looking at God uh, revealing to Ezekiel events that he is going to, to uh, carry out, yet in the future, he is, he, God is actually giving him insight into the next siege and what we, are, we call the final siege, right? That third siege, which finally takes into captivity all of Israel. And under whose uh, authority then are they going to fall for the next 70 years? In Babylon, that's right. They're going to be underneath Nebuchadnezzar and those who follow him in the Babylonian captivity. Now, if, if you were here to do Daniel, this is all review for you. And it, it's quite exciting if you start merging together some of the, um, the, the timelines of events, knowing that you know, Daniel has already had his, his visions. His visions covered world history, right? And through his visions, we, we see that there's Babylon, and then there's Medo-Persia, and then there's Greece, and then there's Rome. And then also it speaks of the end-time uh, kingdom that is yet to come when Christ will return during that day that we call Daniel's 70th week, right? The, the seven-year tribulation, as most of us think of it. All right, so we know he is... He is um, the um, prophet, correct? What else do we know about him? He is the priest. Now, why is that significant in, in understanding things that we're looking at? Yeah, a lot of his insight, as a matter of fact, some of the little nuances that go on in the, the unfolding of this storyline, he makes reference to things like, for instance, at the close of chapter 11, he says, and therefore I knew, right? What, does anybody pick up on that? That Well, what, what does he mean by, well, then I knew that this was the cherubim? Why did he know it? Because then. Did it, and Kay asked you the question to try to go back and pick up on that. What was the reason why he now knows? What had he seen in this vision, when it, the opening of this vision? 
he saw again four living beings, and this time he calls them the cherubim. And he says, now I know they were the cherubim because why? Okay, he sees the temple, but what does he see before? What is the very first thing he sees in that opening chapter 8 in that vision? What does he see again? The throne. And they are beneath the throne. And therefore I knew that they were the cherubim. And that they were the same as the four living beings I had seen before. Did you see that connection? So what he's saying is because I saw the throne, I know that these, are, that these four living beings were the cherubim. And what does he do in that chapter as far as giving us a description? Did you get a chance to make a comparison? Yeah? Yeah, there was one, one variation in that unfolding this, right? Did anybody do a little research as to why there might be a variation or what that might indicate to us? Do we absolutely know, even though there's a difference between the way he describes one, in one account he describes the, the, the one face as a bull, and then the next time he says it's the face of a cherubim, uh, since he's already told us at the close of this, I absolutely know that this is the same as the first four that I saw. What does that tell you then about the identity, the visual identity then of the, the cherubim, that particular cherubim? Looks like a bull. Like <laughs> That's the only conclusion we can come to. Now, what's very interesting is when you go into commentaries, did you find a lot of weird things? People are like making all kinds of suppositions about maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And what I always say is in, in precept is what Kay and the, and the curriculum tries to say to us, and that is don't impose your thoughts. What does it say? And therefore you can draw a conclusion from that. And what it does say is he absolutely knows that they are the same. Why does he know they're the same? Because he saw them beneath the throne just as he had in chapter 1. Now, the, connecting that with his identity as the priest, what does the priest know about the cherubim? They're, they are identified in the throne room of God, which is in the temple. It would be in the Holy of Holies that the cherubim are hovering over the Ark of the Covenant and upon that which God's uh, spirit, or the glory of God would rest. And it was like a throne for, for the Lord God, that, that uh, seat, right? That mercy seat. So for him, this is why when he closes it, he says, therefore I knew. I knew that I was looking at the same as I was looking at before. And he makes the connection between the throne that he saw in chapter 1 and the throne that he sees then at the beginning of chapter 8. And then he goes on to give you a full-out description of them. Now, what I did, and I would encourage you to try if you you didn't do it and and you, you have time, is I made a comparing list. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can find my list in here for you. Hmm. It's, it, it is buried in the multitudes of things that I did this week. We had a lot of homework again. Where did my... Here it is. Okay. Here's what I did. It's two pages, front and back, but I did a, two columns. I did... Chapter 1, the cherubim's description, and then I did chapter 10, 
the cherubim's description. Do you see how I did that? So if you did not do that, it's really helpful. Because what happens is when you make these kinds of comparisons, it's a lot like when we were doing um, Revelation, and I took you into, we went into Matthew 24, and then we did a synoptic comparison of each of the, the records in the synoptic gospels to say what matches up and what compares. Is, is he actually speaking about the same things or not? And in the end, we saw that all those synoptic recordings um, it, from chapter 24 were in all the other gospels and that they were speaking of the same time because everything was lining up almost word for word, right, with very minor differences, correct? So in inductive Bible study, this was what we would call objective observation. And so by doing the same thing here, we see in chapter 1 and chapter 10, they, all, they almost verbatim line up. Almost everything he said in chapter 1 that he saw, he saw again in chapter 8, okay? With the minor difference that Diane brought up about the bull versus the face of a cherub, which in conclusion, we say that must mean that the face of a cherub is similar to what a bull would look like to us, right? And that's the only conclusion we can come to objectively. Now, you can make all kinds of other suppositions that you might want to dream up, and some of the commentaries do. So you just have to be aware of that and say, okay, but I'm going to say, what does it say? And he concludes in chapter 8 that he's seeing the exact same four living beings. And therefore, they are the same four living beings, right? It was the cherubim as well as the wheels. And the wheels. Now, that's another little point. Now, although that really isn't, isn't related directly to the priest, you know, that I'm talking about here. But we can go into that since you brought it up. Let's talk about that real quick right now. Maybe we get that ironed out, too. What do we know now? Because we talked about this earlier. James brought it up, I think, when we did our first introductory uh, lesson in chapter, our first lesson, when we were talking about the wheels, and it says the spirit of the beings is in the wheels. And we were trying to determine what spirit was that talking about. Was that talking about like the spirit of God, or was it talking about the spirit of the being itself? So now that you've had more time, and now that you have a second look at these by by comparing the two chapter visions, what have you concluded about the wheels? Have you, have you come to a conclusion about how the wheels relate to the cherubim? There are four cherubim. Each cherubim has what? How many wheels? Each cherubim has a wheel, right? In the description of the wheel, what does it say about the wheel in relationship to the cherub? It's beside him and always moves with it. As if they're one, right? Even though they are visually separated, there seems to be the spirit of the being, the cherub being, is in the wheels so that when the being himself moves, that wheel moves. So how would you relate that? How, how would you, what would you conclude then about the wheel and its relationship to the cherub? Very good, Diane. I think so, too. Ha- any other thoughts? It's almost as if, it, in my thinking, it, and I'm just going to make a, a comparison from Katie's reasoning. It's like the appendage of an arm. Your arm moves. When, you're, when your brain thinks, your arm moves, right? For the cherubim, when they move, the wheel moves because the wheel is a part of the being. And it says, and the spirit of the being is in the wheels, 
So it's like a part of that being. It's, even though it looks visually separate, they are one. Each cherub has a wheel. Isn't that interesting? So I hope that kind of helps give you a little better insight about possibly how, what we're looking at when we look at the cherubim and the wheels. And the wheels are there, but the wheels are a part of the cherubim, the cherub. Each cherub has a wheel. It didn't seem to say that they're attached, but that the wheels would touch the earth. And when the, the being, when the cherub moved, the wheel moved. So I don't know if they're attached. It didn't say in the description. It never said they were connected by or anything like that. So I don't know. But it's interesting to me how at first he describes them separately. So in my mind, they seemed separate. Uh, when you looked through your research on art, the art, artistic renditions of, of Ezekiel, did you find that they were connected? No, they weren't. No, they weren't. So why? Because the impression through the writing is that here was a cherub and here was a wheel, right? But the connecting point is that the spirit of the being is in the wheel, and when the being moves, the wheel moves. So even though they're described as being separate, it seems they're one. Does that make sense? Okay. You guys are not very talkative about that. Obviously, you didn't find that interesting as I did. Yes, yes. But that's why to me all of the way it's described on that there are four cherubim mm-hmm. and they're like in a square, they're all attached to it. Right, because their wings would touch one another. They would basically what the tells you is, is they're in a square around something. And in the on the Ark of the Covenant there is a box, right? And the we and their wings come over uh, and touch. Now this is where Ezekiel, when he says, "And therefore I knew," what do you think he knew about the Ark of the Covenant and the inner part of that tabernacle? As a as a priest, he knew what it what looked like because he had been trained as a priest. So are you starting to see now why it's important to even look at things like his title is priest. It's one of the the things that we know about him. And although he never served in the temple because he became of age probably while he was in this time of captivity, that age of 30 it mentions there in the opening of chapter 1. But what we do know is he would have verbally been instructed greatly all his life. He would have been instructed knowing that one day he would be priest. Right? So that instruction about the cherubim, he would have had a great deal of instruction about what a cherubim did, its function and its visually, what it, what it was about. And the idea that it would be on the ark and that the wings would be touching one another and they would be hovering over and that the glory of God would rest down in the midst of those cherubim. And so he said, and therefore I knew. Because he connected the throne that he saw before and the throne that he saw again and the cherubim underneath that and the idea of their wings expanded out and in the midst of them was God, the glory of God. Exciting, huh? It's starting to like go, oh. You know, there's some of these things, you know, granted, 
They're not essential for us in salvation per se, but they are so enriching for um, really coming into, I think anyway for me, into a deeper intimacy with God. Coming to see more uh, clearly that this, this thing that we call the glory of the Lord, which seems a little mystical to me, um, without this kind of in-depth study, now it becomes much more rich. And to know that God has created a being whom, uh, whom accompanies him, who is a servant to him, and that in, in some essence there's a covering that they, uh, position that they perform in the idea that God is surrounded in his, by his glory is surrounded by his created beings and that there's a uh, there's an ominence or a presence about him that is to be worshiped and protected and admired and right all these things and so it just takes you to a new level i think in appreciating who god is really all right so we now we know then that he is fine laid my paper down what did i do with it he we know that he is the priest we know he, what else is he we know, we also know what else about him um yeah we saw the age but besides that he's a priest and the besides the fact that he's a prophet god called him specifically for something what was it to be a watchman now does any i'm i have a oh here it is i have a um uh, a photo album that I'll bring in maybe next week or the next or whatever, also for show and tell, because I got lots of show and tells. But uh, when we, when I went on one of my trips um, to Ephesus, the one that I went with, I went with Precept Ministries and we did uh, the Journeys of Paul, went throughout Greece, and then we took a trip to uh, Ephesus by boat. You know, we went to, we, we did a gr- basically Greek island tour, sort of, and hit Rhodes and Patmos on the island of Patmos. We did Ephesus, and then we came back to Athens at the end of it, and it was awesome. Well, one of the things that we did was when we were in um, Ephesus, which I was there many times through the years that we lived there, the eight years that I lived in Turkey, but we, I was able to get a photograph of what was called the, the Watchtower of Ephesus. Each city has its own watchtower, right? And a watchtower is what? What do you know a, wa- to, a watchtower to be? It's something very tall, isn't it? So what would you assume is tall around a city? A mountain, yes, exactly. So I, when we were there, one of the things Kay did for us is she was just so happy, because it's really funny, because I had been to Ephesus a multitude of times, but I'd never noticed, quote, the watchtower. But I didn't know. I had no clue. And she said, look, there's the watchtower of Ephesus. And I turned and looked, and so I was able to snap a picture of it. And there's a great high mountain, and it overlooks the city, the bay area. It can see out to sea and what's coming, and it can see in all directions around it from, from anyone that would be coming from any direction. And that was where they would post their watchmen for the city. And I thought, what an amazing visual that is to grasp the concept of Ezekiel. So tell me, what does that mean then for Ezekiel visually? What is that telling us about his, his calling by God? What is he, what is he doing for, for Israel according to what God challenged him with? Okay, watching out, watching over the people. And in this case, he's taking the word of the Lord. He's watching for the word of the Lord. 
There you go. He is specifically, his, his role by God in the, that calling in chapters 1, 2, and 3 was that when you hear a word from me, what? You speak it. And what about the receiving end of things? You do not worry about whether they listen to you or not, whether they like the message or they don't. He said, you speak my word to them, right? And in this case, the danger is coming from God. I mean, Isn't that interesting? Yes, it is. Uh, on, as far as insights then to our personal application of this, what do you see about that um, in regards to how you view sometimes the things that come into your life, things that come maybe even against you? Well, he loves them. Yeah. And in the case of Ezekiel, he's doing it for judgment because what had these people done? Yeah, all these idolatries and abominations that they violated their covenant with God, right? And now in our lives, obviously, I mean, I'm assuming that we in here, we are faithfully walking with God. And yet sometimes things do still come against us, right? What do we learn then about the idea that since God is sovereign, right? And he allows hardships to come. He allows People are in our lives to die. He allows us to have really serious illnesses sometimes. He allows us to have difficulties with family members. He allows us to have financial challenges in our life. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the possibilities of difficulties that we can have. And yet we know our God is most high, right? He is, he is the almighty. And therefore, what do we learn as we're looking at the 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 character of our God in regards to the fact that he's sovereign, and yet things are allowed to come our way. What are we learning? What should Israel have learned at the point where they were? Oh, I love that. Do you remember the one part, the one verse that says that, um, and they will know that they have hurt the heart of God? That one just broke my heart when I read that. I went, wow. We know that also that he's conforming us to the image of his son. There, there. You know, we've got to assume that many of the things, if not all of them, that come into our lives are for that purpose. That's pretty hard sometimes to yeah. handle, though, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, golly, Lord, you know. When will the struggles end? And all I can do is keep going back to number one, my God is sovereign. He doesn't allow these things to just fall on me. They're not an accident. Everything is filtered through the hand of, and the fingers of our, of our Father. But his desire is to conform me to the image of his Son, to purify, to weed out the, the things of, in my life that are not pleasing him, that are not glorifying to him, that are not good for me, Right? And so these things that come our way, we have to constantly remember that he is God most high. He is Jehovah. And so in this particular book, we have an author who is the priest. He is the prophet sent by God for these people. He is also the watchman. And he is the watchman who's really watching God perform his word, right, upon these people to execute exactly what God had said. Tell me where in, in uh, the, the sequence of events of Israel did God tell them, that these kinds of things would happen if they didn't obey. Yeah, right. 
back at Mount Sinai when they made covenant with God. Obey and you will be blessed. And disobey and you will be cursed. And then did he not actually go forward and give them a great rendition of all the possibilities for cursings? And has God not, through the course of their history, given them little by little what we call chastisements or disciplines, trying to bring them back? Yes. So he's taken it from them for a reason. Yes, he sure is. Not only maybe to also let them know that, hey, this is in the plan of God. Yes. Well, who are the, who are the ones that are out in the exile? What were they called in the, in the text that we saw this week? The remnant. Meaning, if you think of it in perspective to the man in linen who came and marked people, right? And then those executioners who came to slay the others. What does that tell you about the ones who were not slain? They were, they were marked out by God for their salvation. And God says in that chapter about them, he says, even though I took them into exile, what did I do? I was a sanctuary to them, right? I was a protection to them. All right. So, I mean, there's a lot of truth already in just looking at who the author is and what his role was and what he was assigned to do, that he was this priest, the prophet, and the watchman. Okay, now let's talk about the recipients again. Now, what do we know about our recipients besides the fact that they are big-time sinners? (laughs) We know where are they located? Uh, that the ones that he's writing to specifically are, not, as Craig brought up, he's not writing to, and he's not conveying the message to whom the ones in that are still in Jerusalem, right? He's actually speaking to who? The exiles, right? Where do you remember when it talked about the leaders had come to his house to to see him, and this is when he has the second vision, and then it says at the close of that, what does he do? Yes, in chapter 11, verse um, 25, what does he say? Wow. Mark that as a key verse for identifying who the audience is for you. Chapter 11, verse 25. It's one of many. There's multitudes of them. But this one, I think, is particularly clear about the fact that these, the message specifically is not for the nation on the whole at this point, right? Who had come and given the nation their, their prophetic word from God previously? <laughs> yeah. All those prophets who came before, even Daniel was, <laughs> was about talking about the things that they were doing. But certainly Jeremiah, and then previous to that, there was Ezekiel. And so we know that, th- that God had already spent the, or sent the prophets multitudes of times to warn them and warn them and warn them. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, talks about that over and over. I have told you these things, right? So here, though, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 25, De- uh, Ezekiel says very clearly, he says, look, he said, then I turned and I spoke to the exiles. Now, why would it be important to speak to the exiles? Because what, what is his message to them? Is it doom and gloom to them? No, because that concluding section there is what? Hope. 
It's that hope, look, I, even though I did send you into exile, yes, I did. I did that, but I'm telling you, I have been with you and I've been a protection to you there. And guess what I'm going to do eventually? I'm going to bring you back and put you upon the land. And then he makes a real prophetic statement to them that has a, has a partial fulfillment short term, but has a much fuller fulfillment eventually, which has not even yet come to pass. And what was the promise in that closing section? That was your last day's homework. Yeah, yeah, that one day I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to place my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my precepts. So the recipients then are very clearly identified for us then in 1125 in our homework for this week. And I loved that. Now, what about the dating of things? We started out in chapter one and it's in the fifth year, right, of a certain king's rule, Jehoiakim, correct? And so we know that's about 592 B.C. What about when we hit chapters 8 to 11? Where are we? We're in the sixth year, so we're a year later. Did everybody pick up on that? That's what Kay wanted you to see, was that there's been about a year in between the time of his first um, uh, vision and now this second one, okay? So now we're in uh, 591 approximately. All right, now... Yeah. Well, which is interesting, which is why the, the, the leaders came to him. He was closed up in his home. Do you remember when God said, close yourself up? And then lay on this side and then lay on this side. And he had the designated periods of time. So there he was in his home. These elders came to him. And while he was there in that time obeying God, God give him, gives him another vision. Kind of cool, huh? Nice. Good. Pick up on that. All right. Okay. So that kind of sets the context for us. I think we're good on that. Does anybody have any insights or points that they want to bring up at this point about context and about who the author is or the recipients? Any other things? Okay. All right. Well, so then, then the next thing I want to do at this point is just try to systematically go through our paragraphs because one of the things about um, history is it, it is all about events and people, Right. And the best way to observe it is to do it in the logical form. And that is look for those key repeated people and events, right? And look for a sequence of things happening, how the progression occurs. And then just note it as you go along. And so that's what Kay did. And the great thing is she did give us uh, paragraph markers to, get, to help us. It doesn't mean you're totally locked into them. And if you choose to see something, well, no, I think this whole thing is all together, or I think you can take this and break it down, fine. Nobody's going to, you know, say that's right or wrong. It's whatever you, however you see it is acceptable. But the major thing is to simply see the flow of thought, the flow of the events that's going on. So we're going to start in chapter 8. And the first thing I want to do is just talk about key words. I'm not going to write these down, but I, I have them on my page for you. When you receive this chart, you'll see them. But I want, I want to ask you, what were the key words that you saw in chapter 8? Abomination. Yeah, abominations was huge. And, and the fact that it was so big, and that's the first thing you mentioned, what does that tell you about probably the title in this chapter? 
Abominations should be somewhere in your title, okay? And if it isn't, then that just, I'm just giving you a reminder about the rules of how you title things. You want to look for what is most dominant, what is most repeated, or what is most emphasized. And that's somewhere in your title it needs to be, okay? Uh, any other primary focus? What is the focus of chapter 8 about as far as location? Where are they? He's at the temple. So there's a secondary key word, right? So possibly, would you say that also might need to be in your title? Yes. Would you say that like, when it says like the Lord's house, is that synonymous with the temple? Absolutely. What do you all think? Do you think the Lord's house is synonymous to the temple? What about the court? What about the threshold? So when you guys are marking these, you don't mark each of those entities separate. When I mark my, my um, temple, I did a, a little symbol like this. And I know it looks like, uh, like a synagogue and not like the temple. I realize that. But it's a simple way of marking the temple that is, I think, pretty easy to see. And I just do it like, and that's a really lopsided one. Whoops. But I do a, a star of David at the top of it, and then I just color the whole thing in in gold. And it's kind of, you know how you can put a box around things sometimes, right, just to mark it? In this case, I just sort of did a box with a little, with a little lump over the top of it to make it look sort of like a, like a synagogue would probably look. But that's my symbol for the temple, okay? And that way I, can, I see that. So when you see the word... House of God, sanctuary of God, the outer court, the inner court, the, um, what are some of the other words? Do you remember any others? Um, the Lord's house, sometimes it's called that. All of those words are synonymous to that place, are they not? So you can mark all of them the same, and that will help clean up the way your markings are on your page, and it won't be quite so complicated and so messy. You can just unify them all together underneath that one title, okay? So if the temple is, is a super, the whole thing, chapter 8, wouldn't you say the whole chapter is about things that are occurring at the temple, right? And the majority of the information is about these abominations which are taking place where? At the temple. So what might a good title be for this chapter? There you go. Very good, James. That was really creative. Okay, so let's do a theme, a title theme. Now, a theme simply means a title, okay, for those of you who don't know that. If she says, you know, find your major theme, sometimes in the, uh, in the um, how-to study book, it'll, it talks about themes, uh, paragraph themes and chapter themes. A theme just simply means a title, okay? So your theme for chapter one would be abominations. At God's temple. You can add anything additional to that that you want. If, if you, you know, once you go beyond the idea of the temple and the abominations, the abominations, now give me the word that you said again. Oh, his vision. He had a vision about that. That's true. He is in a vision. So you could definitely add that. His visions of those, okay. Abominations at God's temple. Is that good? Okay. That's perfectly fine. Yes. Are there any extra, you know, sheets to write the notes on? There was nothing on Edward's paper. 
Oh, yes, lots of them around, sure. And in case you need more, just flip it over and just keep moving because there's lots of them. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. All right. Any other key words that you want to bring up from chapter 8 besides the temple and the abominations and the fact that, that we're in a vision? It is a vision, and so that's a key word to mark, right? And we now know, because we just talked it through a second ago about the dating of things, is this a, the same vision or a different vision from chapter 1? It's a different vision because why? It's been a, different time. a different time. It's a year later. Okay, so we've had a year space in between chapter 1 and chapter 8, and therefore we know, know that this is his second vision. So thus, did you notice the, the title on my chart that I've given to you there? What does it say? Ezekiel's second vision. <laughs> okay. Yes. Even though it's only mentioned once, I think the fact that the glory of the Lord was there is, is kind of key. Absolutely. It fits into what happens Particularly, you know what is really interesting? Because you know how we're always saying how we're looking for key words and then we look for them to, to flow through an entire book, right? In this case, we know that chapter 8 starts a vision and where does it end? At chapter 11, where he then begins to convey it to the exiles, right? It says he tells them about it. So we know that from chapter 8 through chapter 11, there are probably going to be some specific things that are flowing through that are, that are dominant. And certainly the glory of the Lord is one. And it gets mentioned in chapter 8 at the beginning, but then does it dominantly become a, a bigger subject as you move along? Yes, as you move through this vision, it's still, you know, remember the chapter divisions are for our benefit. They're not God-ordained. The whole vision is chapter 8 through chapter 11. So you can look at it on the whole as a, as a, as a one sequence of, a, of events. It's at, a one time in, at one point in time in this man's life. He's having this vision. And so the glory of the Lord gets established in chapter 8 and it only grows with greater intensity as you move through. Somebody had a hand up. Um, n- not necessarily at this point, but because it's, it, how much is the wrath of God um, covered in chapter 8? It's introduces it, right. So I would say it doesn't have to be. Now, if you at least, one of the things that's important about any kind of a theme or a title for a chapter is the, the less you say about it, the better as far as a title is concerned, because all you want is enough of a title that it triggers for you a remembrance, you know? And as Angie brought up, it's the vision part of it. We can add that in there, but it's not as essential because once you say about the abominations at the temple, once you know about this chapter, you go, oh yeah, this is his next vision. And he's, the first thing he tells us about is the abominations at the temple. Now, why does he start there? Does this establish something for you about what is going to follow in the rest of the vision that he's going to tell you about? Yeah, it does. He establishes something. He also calls, uh, there, there is one thing that, that is mentioned in there about, um, about an idol. What is that idol called? It's, yeah, and it's, re- and it's referred to about the seat of jealousy, the seat of the idol of jealousy, Correct. Does anybody want to expound on that for us a little bit? What is he saying there, or what was that all about? I know you probably didn't do it. Okay, what, tell me what we know about our God in relationship to his covenant people. 
he is a jealous God. And so if there is an idol, and what is the location again, the geographic location? The temple. And so if there's an idol to a other God at the temple, therefore God calls this an idol of what? Idol of jealousy. So, and in it, he says it provokes God, right, in, in his jealousy. Okay, so let's just go through now and let's do our paragraphs. And see if we can get through all these. One through four, what was the, right there in the opening, he tells you why it's called this, doesn't he? It's the idol which does what? Provokes jealousy of who? Okay, so we can say idols provoke. Am I spelling that? This looks so wrong. Okay, provoke uh, the jealousy of God. And I added that part on there for clarification for me. And if you don't need it, that's fine. Just the idea that the idols provoke jealousy is all you need to know. And in the context of the whole of this book is what we know is it provokes God's jealousy, right? And then God responds to that, doesn't he? So in 5 and 6, what's the next thing we learn about idols in regards to the fact that they are provoking him? What's going on with those idols in verses 5 and 6? What information is given to you there? Okay, that what talks about that they are committing these great abominations, right? Which the house of Israel are committing here, here where? Here at the temple. And when he says here also, does he actually tell you where location-wise as far as the, the, um, the temple is concerned? Where does he show you visually? If you, did you take a pencil and kind of follow along on your chart? Where are we in regards to this idol that he's mentioning first? At the north gate, right? It says, it says uh, um, my eyes now toward the north, and I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy. So there was, in this case, in verses 5 and 6, in regards to the idea of these idols which are provoking God's jealousy, at, there is an idol at the north gate. And this is the entrance, right? At the entrance. Now, keeping that in mind, and let's establish that then as a pattern. We know idols are provoking his jealousy. We see in the first paragraph that they're at the north gate, at the entrance to the north gate of that temple, correct? Temple is a key word, and these abominations is a key word. So let's go to uh, 7 through 13 then. And where, where do we see idols there? They're carved where? Did I hear you say carved? Oh, at the courtyard. Yes, okay. And courtyard meaning, and also not just at the courtyard, where in the courtyard? Where does it say in those first couple of verses at the top of your page? All the way at the top. He says he has a vision, and it talks about crawling through the wall, doesn't he? And they're carved where? In verse 10. On the walls of the courtyard. Unbelievable. Did any of you get a chance to go to um, 
that, what was it called? That was called the temple experience or something like that. Yes, down in 71 at the, at the, at Don, what is the name of your church? Life Austin. Austin. So it was at Life Austin and they had that temple that they set up. Did any of you guys get to go and do that? Oh, it was phenomenal. And if you don't ever, is it called the temple experience? Is that what they called it? I can't remember the name of it either now, but if it ever comes back to Austin, do not miss it. You get to walk into a tabernacle that's erected out there in their courtyard, and you get and when you enter into the courtyard through the east gate, then you get to see all on the inside of that court what Ezekiel was talking about here, that he in his vision he dug a tunnel through the wall, right? And he looked upon the court on the on the on the inside of the court on the walls and what was carved on the walls of their temple? Idolatry everywhere. All these creeping animals and so forth, it says in here. The, I looked and behold every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of God were carved on the wall all around. Unbelievable. So here we got idols on walls of the court. Okay, so that's the, and that would be the outer court. Okay, now we're going to 14 and 15, and what do we see there? Can I go back to this? I thought that was so rich. Uh, I had two flashes of what it was talking about, the creepy crawl thing. Yeah. Uh, back to Genesis 6, mm-hmm. God entered into the covenant with all life on the earth. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was flashing forward to Peter's dream. Yes. About what's clean and unclean. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. But the fact that these were carved on the walls of their homes, it's what they're worshiping. Or yeah. Carved on the walls, I'm sorry, of the, the temple. Of the temple. Yes. That's what they're worshiping. Yes. You know what that makes me think of is Romans. Go ahead, Craig, because you know Romans. Romans chapter 1, he says that they, re- that they refuse to worship God, but rather they're starting to worship what? The creation, the creation of those creeping things, right? They, they refuse to, the love of the truth, and they refuse to worship the creator, and they turn and they worship the creation. Yes. Um, also in this paragraph, they make the point that the elders of the house of Israel are in there offering incense. Yes, and who are the elders again? By definition, who are these men? Are they just the you and me's of the world? These are the spiritual leaders. Think about that. The leaders, those who are supposed to be helping Israel follow God, love God, obey God, honor God, worship God. They are inside their, their, the walls of the inner court there, and they have carved these things on the walls of God's holy tabernacle. Amazing. It's, so is this impressing upon you why God's calling these things the idol of jealousy and why he then later talks about his wrath and he's going to have no pity? I mean, yes, and why he leaves. Well, certainly he leaves so that the judgment can fall too because it wouldn't fall obviously with his presence there, correct? All right, so in 14 and 15 to further, and he, and he actually says it in that way. He talks about it, He says, and you think that's bad. Then the next thing you see is what? Wait till you see the greater abominations than these, right? So what does he say in 14 and 15 about uh, where they are and what's going on? 
Yes, those, say it again. Yes, Tamaz. And who is that, Tamuz or Tamaz? He's a, a Sumerian. It, wasn't it a female? Okay, so it's a false god. And these women, it says, the women. Now, the fact that it mentions women here, does that help also uh, expound the concept of the guilty? It takes it from not just being the leaders and the elders, right? Now it's the women. You know, if you think about a society, generally, who is the most spiritually in tune in any society? The women are, and it's and it's an emotional thing. I think it's a woman's heart to, to, to for this tender care and for this relationship. It's not to say that men are not powerful and and that they that they also do not have equal fervency for God. I'm not saying that, but it seems like in most societies, the women tend to be, if anybody, the ones who are who are kind of pulling along their husbands or whatever into faith walk. So here when you see that not only are the elders who are the men who are the responsible parties for the watching of God's house, now we have the women, and these women are weeping, right? They weep for Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and he was supposedly killed by a wild boar, and he was so revered that people weeped for him in Babylon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're basically worshiping the same way as the Babylonians. Yes, and so later when God make, brings up that point that you're following in the ways of the nations, not in my way. Right? He talks about that later on. He, he points that out specifically. Here's a perfect example of that, that they have begun to do as the nations around them. In other words, they've allowed the influence. Uh, like it says in 1 Corinthians, um, bad company corrupts good morals. And they've allowed their bad company to corrupt their good morals. And so here we see the women then are weeping for Tammuz. Then in 16 to 18, what happens there? What are the men doing? We have the women and now the men. First we have the leaders, right? <laughs> and where are they location-wise? So they're on the inner court, right? At the entrance of the temple. And they are prostrate, it says. Prostrate. They have prostrated themselves Where? Yeah, and I'm just going to be a little on my title. I put that they were prostrating themselves toward the sun, in just because I wanted to see that they, again there there was the identity of um, idolatry here that they were, and and you could put on there, and their backs were to God's temple. Isn't that funny? I, that was one of the first things I picked up on and went, oh, I wonder if that's a Hebrew idiom or something. And I looked around. I didn't find anything. But there were several different things in the commentaries that talked about the idea that, that, that obviously what that meant was um, one, of the, one of the commentaries talked about a stench. 
The idea of they are putting this twig to God's nose and that the stench of it is like in your face, God, yeah. right? So that was another in, interpretation of what that meant, the twig to the nose, meant be to God's nose. Yeah, I know. These, this is just commentaries. I know. I know. Exactly. But you're right. It's like thumbing your, your nose at the Lord. Exactly. Okay. Well, it just says to put, lay it there, I guess. I did try. I did. Did you do some research on it, James? No, I just, that's kind of the image. Yeah, that. yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that, but yeah. No, and in the context here, it's talking about the fact that what they're doing is putting the twig to the nose. So I think it's a matter of like, I think it's a lot like what Craig said. It's just like thumbing your, what we would say in English is to thumb your nose at someone. Right. I saw that too, that it could be pagan. See, some of these things were not positive, but what we do know is it's not a good thing. It's a negative, right? In the full understanding of it, what we're saying is, is that they are basically thumbing their nose at God and saying, in your face, God, right? Because of what they're doing. It's not like they were just doing this out on the streets somewhere, you know, out away from the temple. They were coming to the court. First, it was at the gate of the entrance of the, of the uh, temple. Then it was on the inner court on the walls. Then it was them, uh, the women at this other gate, uh, which was at the gate of the Lord's house. Now, I don't know if that meant right at the front door, or, but it probably was in the women's court, what they call the women's court. Um, and then for the men, then it was, they were literally right there in front with their backs to God and facing the east. I mean, if, you know, whew, I'm thinking, boy, they're lucky God just didn't zap them right there, you know? All right, so now let's go to the next one because we've got to hurry through these chapters if we want to get through all of them. Let's go now to chapter 9. Keywords in chapter 9, some of them are very similar, the glory of the Lord again and the temple, right? Um, so what else comes up in this particular one that's specific? The idea of the remnant, Okay. The remnant of Israel, definitely. The six men and the man clothed in linen. Yeah, there's those six executioners. And actually, there's almost a contrast, isn't there? Because then there's a contrast. And then among those six executioners comes another one. And who is he? The man in linen. Now, we did a little bit of research on that man in linen, although we didn't do it thoroughly. Um, who, do, who do you think this man in linen is? And what it, Well, tell me, first of all, what was his role? What was he doing? He was marking, and marking for what? Marking for salvation, wasn't he? Right. Now, do you tell me, who do you think would have the knowledge to mark someone for salvation? Only Jesus would. I mean, God himself and Jesus would have the, the, the know-how or the, the insight to read the heart of each individual to know who was righteous and who was unrighteous. Only God would know that. So the idea, that clue alone tells me, I think this is Jesus. Now, so even if I don't know for sure, I can say, well, I think that's probably Jesus because he's marking for salvation. But when we went into some cross-references, we've seen other places where we've seen him described in the same way with, as the man in linen, right? Um, where, do you have any insights or things that you researched on that? No? Uh, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's cool, Yoshiko. I hadn't thought of that one. Did you catch it? She was talking about the idea that he had the writing case and that he is the word of God. I thought that's cool. I kind of like that. Well, that's where I brought the right, this, this particular writing case. This is an, one from the Ottoman period, and I passed this around so most of you have seen this. But this is similar to what would have been, would have been worn by the man in linen. And, uh, they would wear a leather strap on their, around their waist, a belt, basically, and this would hook down into it upon the loin. It would ride upon the loin. And so that, this is, a, is probably like what is being spoken of here in scripture um this one has been used since time in you know of immemorial almost this one is about 200 years old we purchased this one in turkey so if anybody hasn't seen this and you want to see what a writing case looks like it would be this now what was cool is when i went on in and did a word study on that writing case that was upon the loins of the man in linen um this picture came up it was a picture, a pencil drawing, exactly of this. And I went, oh, I have one of those. <laughs> so it kind of surprised me. Yeah. In, in Revelation 7, um, John in, in verse 2 says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God. So in Revelation 7, it's an angel that seals 144,000. True, but, well, okay. Anyway, that's... I, yeah, I, but... But I think in this context where he is literally going amongst the individuals and marking that, I mean, in that context there, there's a ceiling upon those who are going to be the witnesses and potentially they're already sealed for salvation. So the marking of them for that work, it may be distinctive, but yeah. I, okay. I don't know either. But I'm just saying, my first thought was, oh, he's marking them for salvation. The others are executioners. There's a contrast, right? And so my thought is, this would be the work of God, and this is the work of God's avenging angels or his, 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 um, his uh, workmen who go about doing the slaying, right? There was a distinction. Um, so we have the six executioners. We have a, a certain man. This is another key, too. He didn't just say a man, did he? He says a certain man. So in the Hebrew language, the idea, the uh, the articulation of him being distinguished and set apart in that way is also uh, elevates his position. Whoever he is, it elevates him. Okay. So those two things together. Then you start to go to cross-references, and we went into Revelation, and we looked at a time where we saw the man in linen, right? And by definition, do you remember how he's defined there? Same description, man in linen. Did you look, do you remember what it said about, about him specifically? He said of himself, um, hold on, let me see if I can find it. He says, no, in Revelation 1, 12 to 18, remember? And you got, it was in our Revelation at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And he said, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. And then you go down into verse 17 and he says, and he says to John, who's having his vision at that time, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of... Death and Hades. So he's, in other words, the one who is the author of life, and he's the one who can mark for salvation or allow them 
to die, correct? And in this case, since he was dead and now alive forevermore, who is he? Jesus, right. So it, it is very clear in that passage, it's, it's Jesus for sure. You can go into others, and I did some other ones. Let me, I'll just give you the verses. Hold on. I'm not going to go through them all, but... Um, Not really. Right. 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 In this case, though, what we see is he appears when the Lord's throne appears. He seems to be in, in obedience to the Father. What does that make you think about as far as Jesus is concerned? Would you say that Jesus is in obedience to the Father in your understanding of their relationship? Okay, I looked up a bunch of them in John 12 and 14 and 17 and so forth. And he's, he says, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I speak just as the Father has told me. That's one example of that. So, you know, if you st- it's a whole other study and we didn't do it. But just to begin to build your understanding of the dynamics between the Father and the Son, and in the role of this vision, there's a distinction of a certain man who did one thing, and then there are these executioners, okay? And he's distinctive, and he's somehow elevated, and he keeps appearing, and he's commanded by the Father to do things which only God himself really can do, like enter in between the cherubim, Do you remember where he says, enter in between the cherubim and take what? The coals and scatter them. Who is allowed to be on that mercy seat? Okay, so that's a point. It's just one of many. Again, here we are. It's what you call critical thinking or critical examination. You just keep asking the questions. Who could that be? If it were someone else, would they be this or would they be that? I mean, and and maybe one answer all by itself isn't enough. But by the time you build, it's like, a, it's like a, an attorney and you build your case. You have to build enough insight that then you have to then logically say, okay, so who do I think this is, right? So with all the cross-references where Jesus and the man in linen are identified as being the one who was dead and is now alive forevermore, that is clearly Jesus. And then you accumulate those, all those together in... Um, uh, what do you call them, comparing apples with apples, prophecies with prophecies, visions with visions, and in every one of these visions, this man in linen appears, and he is the one who is living and is alive forevermore, who was dead and is alive forevermore. So that's how I came to my conclusion to say, okay, it, it appears to me this man in linen is Jesus, okay? And in that, when you think of the, the imagery of him having the marking tool upon his loins and he goes through and he marks those for what salvation is that not the role of our savior so i thought it was pretty it was pretty cool he yes that's exactly right okay so chapter 9 now we're talking about the one who marks and then the, those who are going to slay or strike Correct? And so the idea of marking and slaying or striking are the two dominant words in chapter 9. So tell me what's going on then in chapters or verses um, 1 and 2. 
Yeah, so these are executioners. They are called to go where? Executioners of the city. Yeah. And so I'm going to put Jerusalem for clarification because I know that's called the city, right? In, the, in that text. We know that speaking of Jerusalem, we know that because the temple's there, <laughs> right? All right. Chapter, uh, paragraph is going to be verses 3 to 8 in chapter 9. The, there's going to be a, a contrast now between what you see happening in verses 3 to 8 and verses 9 and 10, is there not? What happens in 3 to 8? This is the good part. Those who are marked, and what are they? They're marked if they do what? Sigh and groan. Mm-hmm. So those who sigh and groan. They are marked, aren't they? Marked by man and linen. All right. And then in uh, 9 to 10, what happens? Yeah, there's your contrast. You see it? So this is like a contrast. No pity for who? For those who commit what? Those abominations or, or iniquity, right? For a, you can either say abominations or iniquity. I think in that verse it says the word iniquity, doesn't it? And that's why I pulled that word out. For the iniquity of who? Israel and Judah. So that gives us a good timeline. We see that those who, are, those who sigh and groan over those abominations, they are marked by the man in linen. And, but for a 9 and 10, there is no pity for those uh, who commit these iniquities who are of the house of Israel and Judah. Okay? Now, verse 11 gives us a final statement then. What, by, and what does it tell us about the man in linen in verse 11? He does exactly as he was commanded. This takes me back to the Gospel of John, that Jesus does as the Lord tells him to do. Whatever God commands, he does it. So we see God's command is done by man and linen. Is this not teaching? If you, especially if you have not yet really thoroughly built your uh, your doctrinal understanding of the dynamic relationship between God the Father, their distinctive roles. Although God, Christ is God himself, he is God in flesh, and he has a distinctive role. And here what we see him is submissive to the Father. And here it is in the Old Testament. It's not just in the New where he says, I do what my Father says, but it's in the Old too. Here we see him being presented before the Father, Father giving him commandment as to what to do, and then he does exactly what the Father says. Isn't that awesome? The two of them are working together, almost like the cherubim and the wheels. You know, when one moves, the other one moves, right? When God the Father says, then the Father, uh, Jesus the Son does. Isn't that cool? All right, so now let's go to chapter 10. What do we see there? Oh, we need a theme for it. I'm so sorry, you're right. Give me a title for chapter 9 then. You were <laughs> Okay, and you know what? I did both. So tell me what your positive is. I said, man with writing tape marks those who save from judgment. 
Okay, so those who are marked do not touch. It's how the scripture actually says it, right? In verse 6. In verse 6 is actually a really good one. Go look at verse 6 because it covers both sides of it. Did you notice? What does it say in verse 6 of chapter 9? There's your contrast, right? You see both sides of it. So you could pick either side or you could title it with both. Um, I chose to do both. I, I put on there utterly slay beginning at my temple. Uh, and those marked do not touch. That's how I titled it. Now you can, anything along those lines is good. Utterly slay. And it was contrasted with do not touch. Okay, and you can expound on it how you want to. I'm just putting the two things. What does that tell us about our God then in this chapter? Does he make distinctions between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the clean and the unclean? Is that not a principle Israel has been taught throughout history about the idea of being able to identify between what's holy and what's unholy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. These men turn these men back in chapter eight, they turned their back on God, literally putting their posterior in the face of God and worshiping the the, the sun god. Is it doesn't that just make you sick? It just makes me sick. And That's right. Until the day of redemption, you are marked with the Spirit. Um, Ezekiel in, in verse 8 says, uh, He's asking, Are you destroying the whole remnant by pouring out your wrath on oh, Jerusalem? Yes. So I kind of, uh, the theme I was, is God pours out his wrath on Jerusalem. Is, is okay. Yeah, so you went to the negative. Exactly. Yeah, utterly slay. Um, Utterly slay, and I put, I put be, beginning, begin at temple, which covered those men of Israel. So that's kind of how I did. What I did is I actually found a verse that I felt conveyed the fullness of the message in that chapter, and that's why I landed in verse 6, and that one covers both. And so you can title it from one way or the other or both. Um, you want them to be as concise as you can be, but I, I tell you one of the best things is, is once you've made these charts up like this, if you give yourself your scripture verses with things like you're supposed to in the inductive process, right? Um, later, you can always go back and reread that verse because you've written it down. Oh, I wrote verse 6. What does it say in verse 6? Oh, yeah, see there? Look at there. It's talking about those who are slayed and those who are saved. It, it says don't touch those who are marked, but those who have committed iniquity are going to be utterly destroyed. So it covered both of them. So that, that's kind of the process here. What I'm trying to show you today, for those of you who are new at this and are still working on the processes, is first of all, you identify your key repeated words. What is your major event? What's majorly going on? Then, because Kay has been so gracious to give us paragraph uh, markers, we're able to go through and say, okay, what's going on in this paragraph? And as you go through the progression, you're trying to see how does that relate to the whole, to the, the fullness of that chapter's message. 
And so as you can see, he's saying utterly slay beginning at the temple and do not touch those who are marked. We see executioners are called and then we see the man in linen. So there's almost a contrast here between the executioners and the man in linen. But then you get here, you see the man in linen marks those who sigh over here, but there's no pity for those who who commit these iniquities. And in conclusion, you see that man in linen is is doing the Father's will, which I think is interesting. It closed with that. It again elevates the significant importance of the man in linen, that his role is, seems to be exalted in some way to the point that he, he just gives a conclusion statement to that sequence there about who this man in linen is, that he is being in full obedience to the Father. Okay? All right, let's go to 10. What do we see primarily as a key word in chapter 10? The glory of the Lord. Oh, my gosh. It is so dominant. Glory of the Lord is everywhere in there. And there's another synonym to it. What is it's referred to as what? Uh, no, not. The, there's the glory of the God of Israel. And then there is an identifying marker. How is the glory of God re- presented to Israel throughout all of history? In two things. The cloud and that pillar of light, right? So in this case, the cloud comes up again. Did any of you do research to say, is the cloud talking about the glory of the Lord or is that distinctive? Did any of you guys get a chance to research that any? I did. I spent a lot of time on this one because I wanted to know what I found in the commentaries was some of the commentaries were saying that the cloud was a negative, that it was like a sign of doom and gloom, right? But, but in the end, yes, <laughs> in the end, it didn't line up with the, the imagery that Israel has for the cloud and the fire. And Diane brought this up very early in our study of this book about the idea that right from the beginning, there was a pillar of, of uh, fire by night and a cloud by the day. And whenever that came to rest, they knew that that was the glory of God and that it was time for them to camp and so forth. This was their imagery. So the cloud is... The cloud of the glory. So fortunately, equally and actually even more so, I found that commentaries were saying that the cloud is the cloud of glory. Okay, that the cloud does this and the cloud did that and then the glory of the Lord shone, shone, uh, shined or shone in that place. Okay, so you could mark them, in other words, in the same way. Yes. The term means that which fails and is inclined to us, the Bible, mm-hmm. wherever it refers to God, nearer, either in a person, object, or people. That's exactly right. It is often used um, combination with the glory to speak of the presence of God. Right. Uh, so all. Y- yeah. Like, I don't know why, you know, this time they don't present the word, the whole book. Mm-hmm. That's why I told you before, I'm not happy about that because this word should know by all the students. Yes, Shekinah glory. Yes. Yeah. Well, and what's really cool is that throughout the scripture, there are times when God portrayed himself in various ways, like in the burning bush. Again, these imageries are his Shekinah glory given in a way that man can look upon him. 
Do you understand that? And so the idea even of the cloud and the, and the fire that they watched as they traveled through the wilderness was something they could look upon without what? Without dying. Because you can't look upon God and not die, right? Our sin would not permit that. So God has provided through the Shekinah glory a way for us to see the visible presence of God without being consumed. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so now with that settled, we know the cloud and the glory are synonymous, all right? Yes. And, and when Jesus appears as a man, they're not consumed by sin. No, because he comes in, the, in again, in a form which we are allowed yeah. to look upon. Exactly. Which is why the man in linen is, can be seen and looked upon. Yeah, or the man on the throne. Yeah. And the man upon the throne, the one with the figure as a, upon the throne, exactly. Okay. Yes. Oh, good. I'd like to have one of those. Yes. Maybe what we can do is have Lois take it and type it and send it out by email to everyone. How about that? Would that be okay, Lois? Can you do that for me? I don't think it's very long. I think it's short. I just gave her work to do. <laughs> Poor Lois. She gets so sick of me, I bet. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, anybody would have that time. Okay. Pass them around. Just to, you just need one of those. But that shouldn't be too much, I hope. But, you know, it looks like a, even a cut and paste from the definition. All of us could actually do it on our own. I'll give you. Okay. All right. And actually, if you go in and just do a word study on Shekinah Glory, you would get that definition. So, okay. Thank you. All right. Now, let's go back to our Shekinah Glory. So we now know that the glory of the Lord is key in this chapter, correct? And what are we learning in chapter 10 about the glory of the Lord? What happens in chapter 10? It's departing. And it's departing from where? The temple, specific, the temple here, right? And why, is, why am I being careful to distinguish this from the temple here in 10? What happens in 11? It leaves Jerusalem, it, right? It departs from the cherubim. It does, and it goes through the threshold at the eastern gate, so it's out of the temple. He's left his, his place of, of honor in the, in the Holy of Holies, and he's out at the outer entrance of the temple so at, by the conclusion of this chapter he has basically left the temple that's what you need to know and i don't know about you guys but i did a lot of drawing and a lot of reading and you know that book that i've been passing around here that's got the temple is really awesome too it helps a little bit with that too but um the more we study and the more we dig on this the better we get it but it was really it was really cool because she had said you know to um kind of follow it on your chart and so what I did is I actually drew it out I drew my executioners and where they were located what I found was interesting when it said they were on the right side of the temple what did that mean did anybody catch that they were on the right it means they were on the south side of the temple where where the temple sits if you set the temple up like this get my gate in the right place that's to the east then this way south and this way west is the city so the executioners were on the city side what's on the other side and on this side well to the east is the mount of olives and it's a range which runs all the way around to that side so there's a range it comes all the way mount moriah the whole thing is mount moriah and the mount of olives 
okay? And so that, the, on those two sides are the, basically mountains and the Kidron Valley. And then on the south and the west are the city. I think I got it right. Now, if I'm not right, please help me. <laughs> I spent so many hours on this, it was crazy. You would think, I mean, I've been there and I've seen it, but I kept looking at these pictures and the, because they, they switch it this way and they move it l- this way, it kept messing me up in my mind. And so you have to turn, turn the temple so that it faces in the correct direction and then you can see where everything else lays in perspective. Outside. They'd be outside. Well, you know why? Because he, then he talks about him ascending from the cherub, right? The cherubim. Which cherubim is he descending or is he lifting up from? From the ones that are on the south side of the wall? Or from the ones that are in the inner temple? On the Ark of the Covenant. That's why he called them cherub. That's right. That's exactly right. So you have, to, you have to pick through that whole visual. And that's why I spent hours on that. And finally it started to come to me. I mean, the Lord is faithful if you just keep pushing at it. But, you know, I, I had to distinguish and it took me a while. But when he talks about he, he lifted up or he ascended up from the cherub, it was talking about the Ark of the Covenant is where he ascended up. Because then what did he do when he ascended up? He did what? He went out to the threshold correct and then from the threshold he went to the eastern gate okay i know i was confused too it really is one of those things that honestly this would have been a good chapter for you to draw out yourself even though she gave you the the um picture to as a guide for what the temple looked like and where the placement of things were for those who are not as familiar with it. I actually just drew it all out myself, and obviously it's not to scale. But I even drew in, see my little blue heads? Those are those 25 men who were at the altar, right? And then I drew out on the right-hand side then where... And then I couldn't decide which is the right. Is it right when you're looking at it or is it right when you're looking away? And eventually what I found was when I did my research, I found that they were talking about these executioners going to the city and therefore they were on the right side, which is where the city is. And I went, oh, that makes sense. They wouldn't be on the other side. That's the Mount of Olives. That's where the tombs are, right? The tombs of the prophets, okay? So it makes sense. Anyway, so that was fun. Okay, so now let's go through very quickly and title this so we can get through all of these chapters. We're going to come up with a theme here in a minute. We know the theme is going to have something to do with the glory of the Lord, right? So let's just put that up there first. And concerning the glory of the Lord, what? What, is it, what happens to it? It departs. It departs the temple. Okay, so and that, I had that in verses 18 and 19 as my key verse. So this was verse 6. This is 18 and 19. As my key verses, and that was five. Okay, so let's look at paragraphs, divisions again. Let's look at verses one and two. Let's start by simply making a statement as to what it is that he sees, because it's really significant to then how he concludes this chapter. What does it say that he sees in verses one and two? He sees God's throne and... Who was the other one? The man in linen. So I think by identifying those two things, which is what he saw in his vision, this again unites or elevates, uh, exalts the man in linen, and it puts him there with that man on the throne, or or God upon his throne. So we see God's throne, 
in verses 1 and 2, and the man in linen. All right, now going to verses 3 to 5, what happens? We just talked about this. From the cherub, okay? Glory went up to threshold of temple. And we know where the, tre- the threshold, and I say up, and it said from cherub, right? And it, in other words, it's the ark. The ark of the covenant is what it's talking about there. Okay, you put that in parentheses if it helps clarify for you that when the glory went up, it was talking about from, went up from the cherub, it's talking about in the Ark of the Covenant. From the Ark of the Covenant then in the Holy of Holies, it goes out to the threshold. And remember, the threshold is where, who was in one, at one point? The, the, well, outside was the idol of jealousy, but there at the temple were those men. And they had their rear ends facing God and they're facing east. That just blows my mind. I still can't get over that one. Okay, six to eight. What do we see there? Mm-hmm. So the man in linen. Uh, he took fire and went out. I would love to know more about that. I didn't have time to study that one out. Did anybody do any work on that? Okay, we'll just, we'll just have to move on. It's so hard, but we want to get through all this. Okay, then in 9 to 17, we see what happens there. What does he declare to us about these visions? And this is where Kay has you do the comparison between chapter uh, 10 and chapter 1, right? What do you see happening there? Yeah, he again re-describes those cherubim. And in the conclusion of it, after he gives you all that description, and there's a bunch of it, he concludes about them what? They're the same as what he saw before. So, and he says, and I, and I basically, at the end he's going to say he knows, he knows it and he knows why. I love, though, that in these 9 to 17 is where he talks about the spirit of the beings is in the wheels, Right? And that's where I came up with, finally, when I was comparing those two, that I see, ah, the wheels are actually a part of the cherub. They're not distinctively disconnected. They're like an appendage or something. Although they seem to have a mind and a purpose and a function, but they function in relationship to the cherubim itself. So, uh, cherubim are same as four living beings. Um, and then go, you can go on, that he saw by the river Tabar, correct? All right. Then 18 and 19. Now the next phase. That's right. The glory departs where? Okay. Glory departs to temple, the temple's east gate. In other words, it's out of the temple. At the gate, that's the entrance. It's out of the temple now, okay? So it has departed the temple. And that, then you see that conclusion in 20 to 22 that, the, that he knows, right? He knows something specifically. He's very emphatic about that statement. And this is why he knows. And why does he know? He knows that they are what? 
He knows that they are cherubim, so he gives them that name, and he says, I now know those four living beings, I know that they are cherubim, and why do you think he knows it? Mm-hmm. Look at the close of verse four, 19. He talks about them, uh, the glory of the, the God of Israel hovered over who? Them, the cherubim. So, therefore, he knew that they were the cherubim. Why? Because he's the priest. He's been trained about the position that's assigned for these cherubim and that they are the ones which hover around God's glory and that God's glory rests in the midst of them, just like on the Ark of the Covenant, which he would have been trained in. It's kind of subtle, but you do get it eventually, right? I thought it was really interesting because it kept saying, and this is why he knows. And I'm going, what does he know? Why does he know it? Did you all go through that process yourself and say, well, why does he know? I mean, that's a pretty emphatic statement, in the, a declarative statement in the Word of God, that he knows something. He's like confident. He gets it. Yes. That's right. That's exactly what I just, I just said that, didn't I? <laughs> That's exactly what he, he's saying. And he's saying, I'm connecting them because I'm seeing that they are those which are around this glory of the Lord. And then he connects the two. And then I went back and looked at the beginning of the two visions in one and eight. And I made the comparison there. And the first thing that's seen in both is the throne and the cherubim un, uh, surrounding that or underneath the, the throne, right? And so you see the connection there of the throne and the cherubim in both places, and then he concludes saying, now this is why I know, because they were accompanying the glory of God. And when the glory of God departed, guess what? The cherubim went with them. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yes, that was thanks to thanks to the Turks, right? That's exactly right. They did that. The Ottoman, the uh, Suleiman, somebody or other. I've forgotten his name, but yeah. <laughs> okay, chapter eleven, and we are. What time does that say? Five till. We got just enough time. Golly, we're we're skirting in. Give me key words in chapter eleven. Major players. You shall know that I am the Lord is his concluding statement. Therefore, you will know that I am the Lord. And that is a phrase which we have picked up on, and we are supposed to be accumulating a list on that. So I'm hoping that you're continuing to do that on your own. Okay, so that's one statement, the, the, that he is the Lord. Okay, that says the Lord. So we see the Lord God again becomes dominant as a key word in this. As far as location, geographical location, again, where are we? We are still in the same location, correct? At the temple. So we see the temple is is, um, the focus of where we're at. One of the things that's that's brought up here, though, is a distinction between... This is the one about the pot, isn't it? Oh, my gosh, this was so weird. Yes. <laughs> That's good. I'm leaving, but I'll be back. I'm going to come back and gather you. I'm going to 
Yes. Right. Exactly. You know, and you, and it's very interesting. He says, I'm leaving, but I'll be back. And he says, I'll be back to who? Is he speaking to those who are being disciplined or to the ones that are in exile? The remnant who are in exile. He's giving a word of comfort. I love this chapter in that regard, that it shows how God, even in judgment, he's merciful. He's merciful to those who are marked because they mourn and weep over the abominations and the iniquities that are going on. And so the question for you and I is, are we mourning and weeping in our lives today over the things that we're seeing in our world? I know. I know, exactly. It just makes you sick sometimes when you see uh, the most recent thing that we saw was another uh, beheading right here in our, in our own nation. I mean, you think about beheadings taking place over there, but when they start happening here, you just get, it just grabs you, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, does he. Yes, it is. As a matter of fact, that word border in the land comes up as key. Did you notice that? The land and the border, that to the border of this, basically to the border. I will judge you to the border. Now, he, he uses kind of, in this text, he uses an imagery of a pot and flesh. Now, to me, at first, that did not sound good. But apparently these men were saying, we're the flesh and this is our pot. And they were meaning that in a positive light, weren't they? And they, the pot was protecting them and they were the flesh within the pot. And because they were still living, that meant that they, they were safe, right? Now, why is this a problem? What have the prophets been telling them all along? What has Jeremiah told them? What, had, what has even Daniel already uh, spoken of even? What about Isaiah previous to that? They are not safe. These people are not safe. So... Um, what is it in one through four that we see going on there with their leaders? What are their leaders doing? Yes. <laughs> they, they are giving evil advice. Now, that's no small matter for your leaders. If they're giving evil, the city is the pot and we are the flesh. That's what they were saying. In other words, they are simply rejecting or denying God's word through their prophets, correct? But they thought because they were in Jerusalem with God's people, they were safe. That's right. It didn't matter what they did. Right. Exactly. And they they simply were claiming that they had safety uh, when actually judgment was coming. But they they were literally rejecting all that had been told to them through the prophets up to this point, Right. So it's bad advice, evil advice by the leaders who are supposed to know better, who are supposed to have heard the, the words of their prophets in their nation and believe them and then enforce them. They're to be the enforcers and the protectors of God's word through the prophets. Okay, so now in 5 to 12, what does it say then about? They're saying, oh, we're safe in our pot called Jerusalem. And God is saying what? That's right. The Lord will judge them. And how far will he judge them? To the border. Meaning what? They're not going to get away. And he's literally pushing them out of the city. He is making them leave. And he's exiling them. Now, I don't remember. I've got it. I think there's a second King's reference that I got that shows you that exile. Where they actually are shoved all the way out to the border. And then the the, uh, Babylonians come against them and kill them. There's a reference that you can go to. I'll have to look for it. I don't have it handy. I like the contrast. So they're saying, 
then in this section, God's saying, no, you're slaying the flesh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Their perspective is totally off. <laughs> it's not. They're going to boil in their own oil, aren't they? <laughs> All right. Tell me now in 13, something significant happens there. Who is the man that dies? Yeah. He's apparently among the leaders in the opening of that section. It explains who he is. I did word studies on them and tried to do more research. It really doesn't give us any more insight except that I thought was interesting is their names. That was really cool. Let me see if I can find that real quick for you. Uh, Jehovah Hears is one of them. That's right. So the first one, Jananiah, is Jehovah Hears. The next one is Pelita, who is the one that he sees to die, his says Jehovah delivers. But what happened to him? Did he get delivered? Who comes against him in the vision? And, and Ezekiel sees it, right? God comes against him, right? And he sees him executed. He dies right before his eyes in this vision. What does that cause Ezekiel to do? Yeah. If you're killing the leaders, ma'am, how the rest of us got any chance, huh? Potentially, maybe that's what he's talking about. But he dies, and then Ezekiel does basically comes to a, an intercessory place, don't you think? It's almost, to me, what made me, my mind go to was when um, Lot, or not Lot, Abraham was told that, he was, that, the, uh, uh, that the Lord was going to go and slay all the people down in Sodom and Gomorrah and how he came to his defense. But Lord, if there be any righteous among them, will you slay them all? What about for 50? What about for 10? What about for five, right? And so he goes through this pleading and it almost was along those lines where he's going, whoa, wait a minute, are you going to take away all the remnant, Lord? Right? So he goes into a place of interceding. So he sees this man die, this leader die, and Ezekiel intercedes. He intercedes for who? For the remnant. Okay, and then uh, 14 to 21, what do we see? I think it's interesting because it's almost a reply to what he saw in verse 13. He's saying to them, well, okay, he, he, he does make a contrast. You could show a contract, contrast. He's saying, but about the ones who are guilty, what is he going to do? He's, oh, yeah, yes, oh, yeah. I will bring their conduct down on their heads, correct? And then, but then at the same time and in the same breath, he then contrasts that with, I will. I have been. Not only that, he's in a way. It's like he's saying to Ezekiel, um, "Yes, I'm taking care of the iniquity of those who are there and have been committing these abominations." He says, "But also, have you noticed in the exile? Have I not been a sanctuary for those who are the remnant?" If, yeah, that's, if you, Ezekiel says, "What about the remnant?" He says, "I'm going to bring them back from the nations and give them the land of Israel, but the ones who." I'm going to kill the ones that need to be killed, and I'm going to save the ones that need to be saved. That's exactly what it, exactly what it says. Let's see. Um, here it is. Lost my sheet. Okay. 
Um, so how, how do you want to title this particular one, 14 to 21? Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's so good. He, sa he says he is a sanctuary and he will, um, how does, I didn't put it on my, I went to the negative. I should have gone to the positive. Um, let's see. <laughs> I was just, by that time, I'm all about the negative. Um, God will bring remnant back, but will judge the abominable. Okay. He will return remnant. To land and and um, co conduct on heads. Yes, yeah, so he will return the remnant to the land, and this talks about it. It actually only alludes to this new covenant, which we did one cross reference, and we we looked uh, in another place, and I think it was in um, Jeremiah. 31, I think it was, where it talks about that new covenant. And what we know then is when Ezekiel gives this, this word of hope to them about the fact that God is going to return them to the land, he's going to give them this new heart and put the, this, a new spirit within them and they're going to walk with him, they're going to clear the land of all of these detestable things. Is that a short-term or a long-term promise? What do you think Ezekiel thought? I think he thought it was short. So, you know, in, in some ways, though, what we see is that there's a partial fulfillment of this where God does return them to their land at the end, as he has promised through Jeremiah's prophecy, that it would be a distinguished amount of time, 70 years, and that he would return them. He even names the king, Cyrus, through whom he will work. So he has a short-term thing, but what we also know is, has this fully been fulfilled for Israel? Where they've gone back to their land, God has become their God, they are God's people, and all the idols have been removed from their land. And the answer is no. We can definitely say a big no to that one. He will return the remnant to the land and be their God, and that he deals with, I'm just going to put deals with uh, the guilty. And that's not from the text. I'm just throwing that one out there for right now. You're going to have to go in and find your correct wording from your text and get your verse on that. Because I went to the negative, and I, I don't know why I did that. Because it doesn't make sense in the flow of thought. He's interceding for the remnant, so he's telling them about the remnant. He will return them to, the, to their land, and he will be their God. Okay? All right, and then in 22 to 25. Glory the Lord, the yeah. God's glory departs uh, Jerusalem. Okay? And Ezekiel prophesies. I know it. Isn't that funny? In his... Well, no, he's in a vision. He's there. Oh, yeah, the prophet Jeremiah, you're right. There, right now, when That's true. That is true. And build your houses. As a matter of fact, they make a mention of that earlier, and they, they give a snide kind of condescending, oh, yeah, well, let them build their houses, right? You're right. You're absolutely right. Yep, that's it. 
Okay, so this is God's glory. Let's, do, let's end this with God's glory departs as our title for chapter 11, that God's glory departs Jerusalem. And he judges because once he's departed, he can judge them. He judges them to the border. All right. Whew. Pretty good. We covered everything we all looked at this week pretty thoroughly. Not bad, huh? I get a pat on the back. That's four chapters, guys. <laughs> that was amazing. You guys.